0: As Palestinians, we have our history, we have our heritage. The first thing you realize is that Americans know nothing about Palestine. We are standing in the face of attempts
1: to erase us. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host— Join me and find joy in conversation, because, well, it's a mitzvah. What does it mean to be seen, truly seen? Seen on our own terms and through the stories that matter to us as individuals and members of community. For me, the arts are where I rejoice when some part of myself is offered to the world for others to encounter. As a Jew in America, it can be validating to feel visible. Walking into a museum and encountering an exhibit where colors on canvas and paint from a brush tells the world that I exist, well, that's a source of life and of pride. When I sit in a theater and performers on stage speak the language of my ancestors, there's a declaration of value and human dignity in that. It's a declaration that there is beauty in the continued existence of a people. When I sing songs and clap my hands, I celebrate the outpouring of creativity and talent to come from my community. But this past week, I haven't been reading novels by Jewish authors or listening to klezmer or Sephardic song. I've taken to reading poetry, in particular, the work of Mahmoud Darwish, the renowned Palestinian poet. No, I'm not Palestinian, but through Darwish's words, I bear witness to the full humanity of Palestinians. As much as we all wish to be seen and heard, known and loved and valued, there's also the imperative to reciprocate, to turn our attention, our hearts, and our minds to other communities. There's a need to pause, to look and listen a need to learn about who and what exists on the other side of a border. In life, sometimes we have to cross borders and immerse ourselves in the stories and the art, immerse ourselves in the vision of the world and the voices of those who are too often unseen, unheard, or tragically, only seen and heard when others speak on their behalf. The Palestinian people, whether in Gaza or the West Bank, Jordan or Lebanon, New York or Puerto Rico are very often exoticized or reduced to one-dimensional depictions. They become victims and terrorists, or they're absent entirely, as if they don't and never existed. So I read Darwish. I sit with his poetry because his art refuses to be reduced to such misconceptions. When I read his words, I'm not steeped in a world of fear or antagonism. Instead, I experience words that for people dispersed across the world are a source of comfort. These are words that soothe even as they lament a loss of home. Darwish's words are not always comfortable because they're a reckoning with pain and disappointment, even as they're an ode to a people and their place. Let me read from some of Darwish's poems. How far is far? How far is far? How many ways to get there? We walk and walk towards meaning and don't arrive. It is a mirage, guide of the confused to distant water, futile and heroic. We walk and in the desert we grow wiser and don't say because the wilderness is perfection. But our wisdom needs a song with a lively tempo so that hope doesn't flag. How far is far? How many ways to get there? Who am I without exile? A stranger on the riverbank, like the river. Water binds me to your name. Nothing brings me back from my far away to my palm tree. Not peace and not war. Nothing makes me enter the Gospels, not a thing. Nothing sparkles from the shore of ebb and flow between the Euphrates and the Nile. Nothing makes me descend from the Pharaoh's boats. Nothing carries me or makes me carry an idea, not longing and not a promise. What will I do? What will I do without exile and on a long night that stares at the water? If only I were a stone, I would yearn for nothing, no yesterday passing, no tomorrow to come. In my present, neither advancing nor retreating, nothing happens to me. If only I were a stone, I said, oh, if only some stone, so that water would burnish me, green, yellow, I would be placed in a room like a sculpture, or exercises in sculpture, or material for the eruption Of the necessary from the folly of the unnecessary. If only I were a stone, so that I could yearn for something. Darwish and his poems are but one example of a cultural representative of the Palestinian people. Let's learn about the Palestinian people, their varied experiences, and the work being done by a champion of their art in the United States. We're going to focus on Palestinian peoplehood. Listen and learn from Faisal Saleh. Faisal will share with us the work that he's doing to make Palestinian art more accessible in the United States. So let's turn to Faisal and find out what it is that he and the artists that he works with are doing to show the world that Palestinians can be seen, they can be known, they should be valued, and that through art, they can be understood on their own terms. Yellow, let's learn together.
0: My name is Faisal Salah. I come from a, a Palestinian family from the village of Salama, and it's a village five kilometers east of Jaffa. My family was living there until 1948 when they were driven from their homes and became refugees in 48, and I was born three years after that in the town of El Bire, which is a twin city with Ramallah on the West Bank. And I grew up on the West Bank, attended public schools there, and finished the 11th grade. And I came to the U.S. in 1969. And if you remember, that was the year of Woodstock and the year the landing on the moon. So the country was in a crazy uh, environment. And it took me a while to kind of figure out what's going on. At any rate, I ended up going to Oberlin College after that. And I got a master's degree, an MBA. And I work from then till
1: now in business. Faisal is the chairman and founder of Palestine Museum U.S. Located in Woodbridge, Connecticut, the museum promotes the mission of preserving Palestinian history, showcasing Palestinian experience pre- and post Nakba and also in diaspora. Using art, film, literature, and mixed media to tell the world of Palestinian stories, the museum creates a space for common ground among all Palestinians. Let's learn more about Faisal's vision and what can be found within this cultural space of the museum. Can you share a little bit about what the original idea was for establishing the museum?
0: The idea behind the museum is um, that Palestinians at the time had no museums in the entire Western Hemisphere. So I thought it was really was very important to, to create a presence for Palestinian arts in the U.S. by establishing a full-fledged museum that is significant and substantial in terms of size and content And I worked at it, uh, you know, for, you know, almost a year doing that.
1: If somebody were to visit the museum who had no familiarity with Palestinian artistic expressions, traditions, culture, what is it that they will encounter? What will they see, feel, and experience upon entering the museum?
0: The first thing they realize, wow, wow this is a lot more substantial than I thought. They're like amazed uh, at the scale and the content and the quality of what's in there. For some reason, a lot of people, when they think about Palestinians, they're not thinking of a big museum with a lot of lot of space and a lot of art. Now, we have over 6,000 square feet of space that's full of artwork. There's like 200 paintings. Uh, they're artwork for about 50 or 60 artists. And in addition to uh, paintings and drawings on the walls, we have historic photographs. And throughout the museum, we have embroidery pieces. We have Palestinian dresses, they call them soaps, that are heavily embroidered. And we have about at least 20 of those on mannequins in different parts of the museum to prove the fact that Palestine was a vibrant society. And they had a lot of cultural activities. We also have uh, 100 children's drawings from Gaza as part of a therapy program for the children who were traumatized in 2009 during Operation Cast Lead that no one was able to exhibit anywhere in the U.S. I mean, we have people come and look at those pictures, the drawings, and they cry. And these are not even Palestinian. So you see, the Palestinian art, you know, is full of expressions of what happened, but also it's full of things that have nothing to do with that. I mean, the Palestinian artists is just like any other artist. They draw things that has nothing to do with Palestine or have nothing to do with politics or anything. They're just, you know, creative artists. They're doing their art thing. They're like anybody else. We see some of each. The museum doesn't have flags and things like that. doesn't have... A lot of nationalistic expressions it just has examples of palestinian artists work we want the people to see us as normal people and as humans because we've been dehumanized people call us terrorists and things like that we want them to learn that palestinians are people just like anyone else and when they come into the museum they they get a, a flavor of that they see all this artwork They see. Music that, uh, that they play or they write. There's just a lot of things that m- makes Palestinians look human to, to you, as in Marakitra.
1: You talked about some of those traditional forms of, of art or expression. I'm thinking about the thobe and embroidery in particular. Can you describe and characterize? the significance of the thobe or the embroidery and what it looks like and what it represents?
0: I mean, the thobes are part of the Palestinian heritage. The thobes started in the villages where women used to make their own clothes and they used to decorate them with embroidery. These are like cross stitches in different colors, on different fabrics. And with time, each village evolved its own style of design for these dopes, and the style is very artistic. There are some lines and some shapes, some geometrics, some different things, and they all give a whole different look. And So each village or each town has its own style. There are books of are like 600 pages that show the different styles of each region, each area, and sure about, like, the elements of the design or elements of the styles that exist. So it's a whole uh, art field unto itself, and it is part of the Palestinian heritage, and Palestinians cling to it as a form of identity. It's what distinguishes them from other people, and it's a unique art that Palestinians have.
1: You had said that the museum doesn't have flags or these national emblems on display, I'm curious to know, as one looks at some of the visual art, what are some, some visual cues to iconic Palestinian symbols that might be found on display in the museum?
0: Yeah, well, you're going to find, like, there are drawings of Jerusalem, for instance, the paintings of Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock, the character of the Holy Sepulchre drawings, you know, the Palestinian landscapes uh, around Jerusalem, uh, uh, there is a big photo of Jerusalem I took from uh, the window of an airplane, for instance, at 20,000 feet looking down at the city. You see some of the Palestinian colors. The Palestinian colors are black, red, green, and white. And you see that in some of the designs or some of the artwork. We don't exhibit things that are direct. You, know, the, you may see like a symbol of a key, for instance. Well, the key when, when Palestinians left their homes in 48, they locked the doors and they took the keys with them because they were told they could be coming back like, in a couple of weeks. It's just a matter of get out for a, two or three weeks till the fighting stops, and, and then you come back afterwards. And then 73 years later, they still have people still have keys that they took with them the keys to their houses. And these keys have become a symbol for the, what, what the people call the right of return. The Palestinians have not given up the right to return to their homes. That, that's one of their key demands, is they need to have the right to return to where they used to live and where they came from.
1: I'm also thinking about the landscape and the importance of the olive tree or Zatar or, or things like that. Can you talk about those which which might have real deep emotional significance, even if they're not the same as a flag, as a, as a national symbol. It's for the tree that doesn't
0: need hardly any work. It doesn't need water. It derives its own water on its own. Nobody waters olive trees. And it has very deep roots in the ground. And it lives anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 years. There are olive trees in Jerusalem that are over 2,000 years old.
1: The olive tree has such symbolic importance. They're fruit-bearing, emblematic of the Palestinian landscape, and resilient in their ability to withstand the elements of a region that is at once coastal, arid, and mountainous. Let's continue thinking about resilience, not just in metaphorical terms, but in more concrete and tangible ways. How is it that Palestinian identity proves resilient? And what of Palestine has stayed with you and your family through this displacement?
0: Well, every, every Palestinian, when they're born, their parents are telling them where they came from. Every Palestinian knows what village they're from. Even that village was lost 73 years ago. You ask somebody, where are you from? They tell you, I'm from such and such village, and it's near Haifa, or it's near Yaffa, or it's, uh, we're from Yafa, we're from El-Lid, we're from this." And the children learn from their parents. The parents tell them the history of what happened and how they lost the land and where the land was And because these people are living in, in, in exile still. They're Palestinians in Lebanon. They've never seen Palestine, but, but Palestine is all they know. And the children learn it from the parents, and it, it's like DNA that gets passed on. They're Palestinians in 180 countries around the world. And they're all Palestinians. They all carry different passports. I'd hate to say it, but they are the new Jews. They're going to places where they can find a shelter and where they can be safe uh, and have a living. But they're not forgetting that they're Palestinians, that they're from Palestine, uh, and that their parents and grandparents died in anguish after being exiled. Every Palestinian has properties and land and there are people in Jerusalem, they walk by the houses where they, where their parents used to live and they can't even step inside the house. There's a woman that goes every week, one day a week, she goes into a house that her father built and she sneaks into the yard and steals fruit from the trees in the house and she gets arrested every week and then she's spend the night in jail and freed the next day. And she does that every every week. It's, you know, you have no idea what it feels like for somebody to walk by their property that their parents built with their blood and sweat and tears over the years and to see other people living in it and they can't even walk into it. They see the doors, to see the tile. There are people still living who these houses belong to. I mean, they're like in their eighties and nineties. So you, you, you get a feeling for what makes a Palestinian. It's the commonality of that feeling is that they everybody do we all feel we're part of the same part of the same family of people that had the same fate. So this this is really what the story is about.
1: Who is it that you find goes into the museum? Are these people who are predisposed to be sensitive to Palestinian causes or concerns? Yeah, I mean our audience
0: is really breaks into two halves a well, half of the audience is are Palestinians or people who are from Arabic countries, and it's the other half of the audience are non-Palestinians, not Arabs, and, and these are Americans who may have a connection to Palestine. Maybe they visited there once or they have a friend who's Palestinian or they heard about it or they're part of some sort of a peace thing or belong to some church group that does this or that or have heard uh, about what's going on there and they're concerned. There's that kind of group of people or, or people who somehow got exposed to Palestine and knew a little bit about it and they want to know more. Even like members of the Jewish community who come visit, a lot of them feel that as well. I mean, they may they may feel a few things make them feel uncomfortable, but a lot of things they see, they they uh, you know, it, it appeals to them. I mean, it touches their hearts when they come in there.
1: Who else would you like to see coming to the museum? What audiences do you think would truly benefit from that exposure? And then, what do you think would come out of it? if they were exposed to what's found in the museum. I think the more people in America know about Palestine,
0: the more they can direct the U.S. policy in the long run in a way that can contribute to a a positive role in in solving the problem in, in Palestine and creating peace in Palestine. It is beneficial for Americans to learn about Palestine, about the Middle East, and the history of there or what's going on, because that can only benefit long term. It could contribute to having the U.S. take a more reasonable policy with respect to Palestine and Israel, and a policy that is somewhat neutral and not supporting Israel blindly, no matter what. So
1: there's the messages for. Americans, and then I think there's also the messages for Jews in America for whom perhaps it can be really challenging to hear what you're saying. What is your message to people who really struggle with hearing anything critical of Israel?
0: It's very simple. The Jewish community in the U.S. is uniquely positioned to have an impact on what the U.S. does in palestine and israel i think they can be more helpful to israel by trying to understand what actually happened there and what is happening what israel is doing i have a lot of faith in the jewish community in the u.s and i believe that once they understand what's going on and once they have a chance to think about their values and what judaism stands for and the values of judaism and if they apply those values to what's going on there i have no doubt that they will have a different feeling they feel like they have a moral obligation to israel and i understand that but i think they also have a moral obligation to tell israel when israel is going wrong and they have an obligation To steer Israel in the right direction for the future of peace, Israel prevents Palestinians from digging wells to water their agriculture because they want to use the water for the settlements that are adjacent. Meanwhile, the Palestinian farmers have no water. There are roads that the Palestinians can't travel on. They have to use Uh, Long roads and um, unpaved roads to get around. So there's like there are basically two systems there. If you are not Jewish in Israel, you're you're like a second or third or fourth class citizen, and everything is skewed against you. Even if you're an Israeli citizen, even Palestinians who are citizens of Israel are not getting equality there. People need to understand what supporting Israel means because the world would hold them accountable. They can't say we didn't know. I mean, there's a there's a significant part of the Jewish community, like Jewish Voice for Peace. They're supporting the Palestinians' right of return. They're supporting the Palestinian rights and giving Palestinians human rights. And, uh, you know, they're Jewish just like anybody else who's Jewish. As Palestinians, we don't have any problem with Jewish people. I mean, we lived in peace with the Jewish community in Jerusalem and other parts of Palestine. We recognize there's a difference between Jewish people and Zionists. Zionism is a political movement, and it's a nationalistic movement. Like I said, I have a lot of faith in in the Jewish people in in, in the U.S. that they would really— When they find out what actually goes on in Israel and what Israel is doing, I would hope that they would have, you know, a different perspective on things there. And then they, they could help Israel a lot by letting Israel know that they don't agree with them on all the things they're doing and that Israel needs to reform what they're doing and begin treating Palestinians like human beings. And and trying to rectify the injustice that was inflicted upon the Palestinians when Israel was created.
1: Faisal's work with the Palestine Museum U.S. tells stories of Palestine and Palestinians. Through visual arts, music, and traditional forms of material culture, he, the Palestinian artist that he works with, and the rest of the museum community, promote teaching, learning, cultural preservation, and also the display of Palestinian originality. In a world of borders and walls, art is a conduit for reclaiming life and identity. It alone may not solve the world's problems, but it can at least build bridges between communities. A special thanks to Faisal Saleh. It was a treat talking to you. To learn more about the museum, visit palestinemuseum.us. There you can take virtual tours of the museum, watch exhibit videos, and learn more about Palestinian art, history, and culture. Thanks always to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering joy and conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song, which was not heard in this episode. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And for his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazaro. This episode featured a version of Adnan Odez's song, Yama Mawil Al Hawa, performed by Maria Trogolo on the Canoon. We also had the pleasure of including the music of Basil Zayed throughout the episode. Basil is a singer, composer, and oud master. To learn more about his music, visit basilzayed.com. Our episodes typically feature music from the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music's on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available to creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy and Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and visit our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. Podcast.com. Fakum. We'll see you next time.